One of the surprising statements of Scripture is that God is looking for people who will become worshippers. We're familiar with God seeking us for a variety of reasons, but perhaps we, we don't always think of the fact that God is very, very anxious that men and women and boys and girls should know how to worship Him. Now, given that that is the case, I think it would be true to say that people have different perceptions as to what constitutes worship. I think probably one of the most common perceptions would be that worship is something that you do at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, give an hour or two difference. That we have places of worship and that we have people who are trained and skilled and called to lead in worship. And so we dutifully gather with God's people on the Lord's Day in a place of worship to worship. Now, this is a perfectly legitimate and appropriate understanding of worship, but it is a very narrow perception of worship. For if God is only to be worshipped for one hour a week in one particular geographic location, then, of course, there's a very severe limitation uh, on this whole experience of worship. In some instances, the focus has been narrowed down even further. With the advent of the interest in worship in the church, in the contemporary church, with particular reference to praise, and with particular reference to praise in the contemporary idiom, it's not uncommon now to hear people talk about worship as singing choruses, usually a continuous group of choruses, and it's not unusual to go to a church service and hear them say, well, we're going to worship for 40 minutes, and then someone will share with us. And here we see worship being narrowed down, not from an hour a week, but probably to 15 or 20 minutes a week. Well, this clearly is an inadequate view of worship. One of the things that Scripture points out to us is that we are to develop a relationship with the Lord on an ongoing basis that will make an impact in all dimensions of our lives. And what this means, in short, is that we need to discover how to develop an attitude and an activity of worship on a daily basis. It stands to reason that if an integral part of our humanity is the ability to worship, and if one of the uniquenesses of our humanity is that we are capable of worship— does it not stand to reason that our humanity, which is lived on a daily basis, should incorporate the attitude and the activity of daily worship? And I think uh, the, the logic of that is rather obvious. But it is not always apparent to people. And so uh, today we want to address this aspect of worship, which we would call worship uh, as it relates to devotions on a daily basis. I want to put particular stress on this idea of daily worship. Let me read to you a favorite hymn of mine that comes from my British background. I'm not even sure if this hymn is known over here in the States. This is how it goes, and I want you to notice the emphasis on the daily aspect of our relationship with the Lord. O Jesus Christ, grow thou in me, and all things else recede my heart be daily nearer thee, from sin be daily freed. Each day let thy supporting might my weakness still embrace, my darkness vanish in thy light, thy life my death efface. 
in thy bright beams which on me fall, fade every evil thought, that I am nothing, thou art all, I would be daily taught. And the final verse says, make this poor self grow less and less, be thou my life and aim, O make me daily through thy grace more meet to bear thy name. Now, the, em the emphasis there clearly is on this whole idea of a daily walk, a daily experience of the Lord, if you like, an experience of worship and devotion on a daily basis. Now, let's assume that this is something that God wants for us. What would be involved? What is the place of daily devotions in our lives? Let me suggest to you that we can break it down into three sections. Number one, if we're going to develop the, the practice of daily devotions or learning how to worship God in the ordinary mundane aspects of life, firstly, that would involve starting the day with the right attitude. Let me read to you, for instance, from Psalm 108. The opening verses say this, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make music with all my soul. Awaken harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. Now, notice in the midst of that statement about God being exalted above the heavens and his glory being seen over all the earth, in the midst of that statement, it talks about me awakening the dawn. Uh, that, that is a, a rather poetic way of saying, I will start off my day. How will I start off my day? He says, I will start off my day by praising you, O Lord, among the nations and singing of you among the people. Why will I do that at the break of day? For great is your love and your faithfulness reaches the skies. In other words, the psalmist is talking about starting the day with a right attitude. And the right attitude would be an attitude of gratitude for all that God has done in the past and a statement of confidence of all that he is going to do in the day that lies ahead. The, the concern, of course, is that I have experienced his faithfulness. I am I'm cognizant of his love. As I start this new day, it's a clean sheet. It, it is simply to be written upon. It is a new gift to me. But I embark upon it cognizant of his faithfulness and his love. And my overriding concern for this day is that his name might be exalted above the heavens and his glory seen all over the earth, including the part of the earth that I will traverse during the course of the day. Now, somebody has said that there are two ways of starting off the day. One is to wake up and say, good morning, Lord. And the other one is to wake up and say, good Lord, morning. <laughs> now, think about it. Think about it. Which would be your normal approach to a new day. Good morning, Lord. What a joy to have my awakening thoughts focused in the fact that you have brought me safely through the night. What a joy it is to realize that this dawn of a new day speaks once again 
of your faithfulness, your mercies which are new every morning. What a thrill it is, dear Lord, to realize that this new day is a manifestation of your love and grace to me. It is yet another gift. Good morning, Lord. Thank you for all that you've been. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you that I can now embark on this day with an attitude of gratitude. Good morning, Lord. That's one way of doing it. Now, if you've been in the military, you know that if they say by the left quick march, if you start off on your right foot, then you never do get in step. And in the same way, if you start a day on the wrong foot, it's going to take you a long time during the day to get in step. There are two ways of starting the day. Good morning, Lord. Oh, good Lord. Morning. Which is yours? Now, if we're going to develop the attitude of daily devotion, that means that we will begin to start the day with getting the right attitude in place. Assuming that we do, assuming that we start the day with the right attitude, then we can realistically expect to live the day with an expectant spirit. Let me refer you to Psalm 5. This is what the psalmist says in the fifth psalm. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. Morning by morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Morning by morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. Hear that? Morning by morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Morning by morning, I lay my requests before you and I wait in expectation. So here we are. We've started the day, good morning, Lord, with an attitude of gratitude, and now we lay our requests before the Lord, and our requests are that he will be exalted above the heavens, and his glory will be seen in our lives in the mundane activities of that day. Now we go off to work, and the attitude is an attitude of gratitude. We have started off on the right foot. What can we reasonably anticipate in the course of that day? It is that we have laid our request for this day before him. We do it morning by morning, and we therefore embark on the day in expectation. In expectation. Uh, what kind of expectation? Well, I submit to you the expectation will be this. If I have dedicated the day to him, it is a reasonable assumption he will be committed to directing the day for me. Would that be reasonable to assume? If I have dedicated the day to him, it would be a reasonable assumption that he is committed to directing the day for me. And so I move into the activities of the day with this exhilarating sense if it is dedicated to him, it is being directed by him, and I have this ongoing sense of anticipation, of expectation, that he will be himself in the mundane activities of this day. Now, I've started the day right, and I'm now living the day with an expectant spirit. So, uh, then what do I have to do? Well, I've got to come to the end of the day. And at the end of the day, what can I do? Well, listen to Psalm 4, verse 8. This is what the psalmist says. I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What a lovely way to end the day. All right, Lord, we started the day together. We've gone through the day together. And now I guess it's time to uh, uh, just wrap it up together. 
But, but before we do that, perhaps uh, we better make sure uh, that we've tied up any loose ends that need to be tied up. Now, I am by nature a rather laid-back sort of person. Not everybody agrees with this, but I am firmly convinced uh, that this is the case. Incidentally, when I said that in the first service, it was greeted by mocking laughter from large groups of people. But anyway, we won't, we won't get into that. One of the things that I have found very beneficial in my life is that when I was 17, I left school, immediately got a job in a bank. And I learned two things in the bank that have stood me in good stead ever since. Number one, you don't go home at night until you've balanced to the penny. Number two, you leave nothing lying on your desk that could have been dealt with during the day. Very, very good advice if you want to be businesslike. I don't always follow it. I try it as much as I can. I would suggest to you at the end of the day, it's a very, very healthy thing to clear your desk. To spend a little time at the end of the day looking over the day with sober assessment. And as you engage in sober assessment of the day, you look for any unfinished business that might be hanging around cluttering up the desk of the day. Because you see, you want to go to sleep in peace. You want to be able to lay your head on the pillow at night and say, Lord, it was wonderful to awaken the dawn with you. It was wonderful to walk with you through the course of this day. And now at the end of the day, I want to ensure that I am cognizant of all that you have been and done in it. And I also recognize my fallenness and I need to deal with anything that I have failed you in it. So I not only clean my desk, but I take out the garbage each night before I go to sleep. One of the problems that we have in our lives is that we leave garbage lying around in our lives instead of dealing with it before we go to bed at night. Good marital advice contained in Scripture is this. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It seems to assume that we're going to get angry with each other. We're going to be upset with each other. That, that's a given. But the big thing is this. Whilst there may be some legitimacy in getting angry with each other and upset with each other, there is no legitimacy whatsoever in harboring it, maintaining the resentment, and going to bed with that anger in your heart. The wise admonition of Scripture is deal with it before you go to sleep at night. If that is true there, it is true in every dimension of our lives. If there's unfinished business, cluttered desks, and garbage lying around, then you begin to develop an attitude of daily devotion by beginning the day with the right attitude, going through with a sense of expectancy, and at the end of the day, being in a position where you can lay your head on your pillow at peace with. One of the choruses I learned as a little boy in England goes like this. No, I will not sing it. In the morning, first of all, Savior, let me hear thy call. Make me ready to obey thy commands throughout this day. It's a great way to start the day. It's a great way to keep the day in focus. What a wonderful way to end the day is just to engage in a little sober assessment. 
It is appropriate for us to gather with God's people on the Lord's day in the Lord's house and be led in worship. It is also appropriate for us to recognize the place of daily devotion. Some time ago, I was able to visit John Wesley's house in London. Uh, next to his bedroom is a tiny anteroom. In the tiny anteroom, there is a desk and a chair and nothing else. The desk is in front of the window, and the view from the window has a, is a panoramic view over the rooftops of that great metropolis in the southeast of England. And on the desk, in John Wesley's handwriting, is a piece of paper which says this, I sit down alone, only God is here. In his presence I open, I read his book, and what I read, I teach. And there's the key to John Wesley the man who almost single-handedly saved England from going through something similar to the French Revolution. I sit down alone, only God is here. In his presence I open, I read his book, and what I read, I teach. Daily devotions. Now, I want to get a little more practical on this. As I mentioned earlier, there are two specific ways in which God revealed himself to us. And remember that worship is response to God's revelation. That's what worship is. Worship is a response to God's revelation. Now, in Psalm 19, we're reminded in the early verses that God reveals himself in creation. Let me just read the opening uh, verses to you. You're familiar with them. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Now that's poetic, so it needs a little interpretation. What it is saying is this. There is a loud proclamation of the reality of God's person and creative work in creation. So powerful is this proclamation that there is no speech or language. In other words, there is no ethnic group on the face of God's green earth where the voice of God's proclamation in creation is not heard. Nowhere on the face of God's green earth is there a place where creation does not speak loudly and clearly of who God is. Now, if there's any doubt about that, the Apostle Paul banished all doubt in what he said in Romans chapter 1. Let me read to you some of the very powerful words in the beginning of Paul's wonderful letter to the Romans. I'm reading from verse 19. What may be known about God is plain to human beings. Did you hear that? What may be known about God is plain to human beings because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Simply to underline the statement. The statement is this. 
that the invisible God has revealed himself in visible ways so that men and women and boys and girls can begin to understand something of the character and nature, the divine nature and the eternal power of an invisible God. And you say, how in the world can we see an invisible God? And the answer is, in the things that he has made. Moreover, this revelation, this declaration, this proclamation is so unequivocal and so unavoidable that anybody who doesn't see it is without excuse. Moreover, God says that he anticipates that people seeing in creation a revelation of the Creator will be moved to thanksgiving, will be moved to give him honor. In other words, will be moved to worship. They will be moved to worship. And in fact, Romans chapter 1 goes even further and says one of the major complaints that God has about the human race is that they do not worship the God who is revealed in his creation. Now, what all that comes down to is a very, very powerful statement. If we are called on a daily basis to be developing an attitude of praise and adoration and worship to God on a daily basis and we do it by embarking on the morning and going through the day and concluding it in the evening, then what is going to stimulate us to that worship? And the answer is, first of all, not the only answer, but the first answer is we will be stimulated to this kind of worship through our understanding of God's self-revelation in creation. Now, you can't go anywhere. You can't go anywhere without bumping into God's creation. But it is possible to go all over the place in God's creation and not have eyes to see him in it. It is possible to have eyes to see him in it and refuse to worship him on an ongoing basis. And therein lies the problem for many, many people. When we get down to the business of having an attitude and an activity of continual worship, or if you like, daily devotion. Elizabeth Browning put it in very poignant terms. This is what she said. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. Her statement here is very powerful. That if you have eyes to see in the creation something of the creator, that will lead you to an attitude of gratitude and adoration and admiration and worship. On the other hand, it is perfectly possible to move around in the creation and simply sit around and eat blackberries and daub your faces with its juice, totally unaware of who God is. And therein lies the problem for many men and women today. They haven't learned to worship on a daily basis, spontaneously in response to God's revelation in creation. Some time ago, Jill and I were in Holland, and uh, we heard the story of a young boy there who had been looking at one of the magnificent floral displays that Holland is so famous for. 
They have fields and fields and fields of gorgeous tulips in the springtime. And this little boy was standing looking at a gorgeous display of tulips, and he was heard to say, totally oblivious to everybody around him, he was heard to say as he looked at these flowers, <laughs> well done, God! And that's worship. That's worship. Because, you see, here's a little boy who's able to make the connection between tulips and God. Now, there's lots of people who say, oh, I love tulips. Oh, they're my favorite flowers. There's some people who are absolutely superb at growing tulips. In fact, you could be a dyed-in-the-wall atheist and a glorious horticulturalist. You see, we're talking about making the connection. We're talking about the invisible characteristics of God being clearly seen in the things that he has made. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. The problem is making the connection between the revelation and the one who has been revealed. G.K. Chesterton said this, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. Our world is full of sheer wonder. Wonders upon wonders upon wonders upon wonders. No shortage of wonders, terrible shortage of wonder. On our kitchen window, we have a little feeder. It contains four parts of water and one part of sugar. It is there for the little friend that I have there called the hummingbird. The reason it's called the hummingbird is that if you get close enough to it, you can actually hear a humming sound. <laughs> it doesn't come from its throat. It comes from its wings, which are moving so quickly you can barely see it. And the sheer velocity of its wing energy is creating the humming sound. The hummingbird is the most incredible flying machine. It can fly as quick as a dart. And it can put on the brakes, and from going full speed ahead, it can suddenly stop and hover motionless. And then it actually has a reverse, and it can fly backwards. The only bird in the North American continent that can do that. It, it has to revisit our sugared water regularly every 10 or 12 minutes. The reason being it is burning up so much energy. It needs quick energy every few minutes, sugared water. How much energy does it use up? Well, if a 170-pound man was to exert the same amount of energy that a hummingbird does, which incidentally weighs as heavy as a dime, if a 170-pound man was to exert as much energy as a hummingbird, he would require 150,000 calories a day. And it's all in that little bird that weighs as much as a dime. And I watch the hummingbird, and I worship. And I say, well done, God. <laughs> I've flown in a lot of man's flying machines. I think I've flown in just about every kind there is. 
and they're pretty good, they're sure, be it ox carts. But they have no clue compared to the hummingbird. Actually, I got some of our sugared water ready for our hummingbird not too long ago, and I got, out, got it outside and refilled uh, a little feeder after I got back because he'd said, hey, where have you been? And so I filled it up for him. Uh, but I, I unfortunately omitted to get rid of the surplus sugared water. My wife found it. She found it uh, that it had been very attractive to the ants. And it was black, covered with ants. <laughs> Where's the orchid man when you need him? Uh, she uh, dispensed with the ants. Uh, but while she was doing that, I was thinking to myself, you know, the amazing thing about the ant is that it knows where to go. It has a tremendous sense of direction. It knows where it's come from. It knows where it's going. And I did a little study on that. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that every ant has a little brain. And in every ant's little brain is a little computer. And in that computer, there is one million neurons. And while Jill cleared up the ants, I worshipped and she said, I won't tell you what she said. <laughs> there is a limit to worship because it has to become practical somewhere along. Do you get my drift? Do you get my drift? Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush aflame with God. Wordsworth said this, my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky, so was it when my life began. So is it now I am a man. So be it when I shall grow old. Or let me die. In other words, he said, from my earliest recollection, my heart has leapt up when I've seen a rainbow, and now I'm a full-grown man. The same thing happens. And he said, when I'm old, I trust it will happen. And if it doesn't, let me die. Because if I can no longer have my heart lifted up in worship by what I see, I'd rather be dead. He also said this, To me the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. Is that you? Do you know what it is to worship? Spontaneously. You say, you know, you're being quoted Wordsworth and Browning and Chesterton and all these other English folks. Can't we just have something, you know, that we can relate to? I said, okay, here's an English hymn I learned as a kid. You may recognize some of this hymn from the titles of books that were written by James Herriot. You may not have known that he took the title for his books from this children's hymn. Listen to it. All things bright and beautiful... All creatures, great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Each little flower that opens, each little bird that sings, he made their glowing colors, he made their tiny wings. The purple-headed mountain, the river running by, the sunset and the morning, the brightness of the sky, the cold wind in the winter. <laughs> you listening? The cold wind in the winter, the pleasant summer sun, the ripe fruits in the garden. He made them everyone. Listen to this. He gave us eyes to see them and lips that we might tell how great is God Almighty. 
who has done all things well. Worship! Earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush. Fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. That's the first thing I wanted to say. You say you're not through? No, not quite. But I'll go through this second bit very, very quickly. Because I think we're a little bit more familiar with this second part. God reveals himself in creation in order that we might practice spontaneous devotion as we see him surprisingly revealed. But God also reveals himself in Scripture. Psalm 19 goes on to talk about the law of the Lord and the precepts of the Lord. And it gives all kinds of wonderful statements about the word of the Lord. And as we think about the great statements of the word of the Lord, we are reminded of the fact that God reveals himself in Scripture. And what is necessary if we're going to engage in daily devotion is not only the development of spontaneous devotion, but also the discipline of structured devotions in which we know what it is on a daily basis to be feeding on God's self-revelation in Scripture. Now, you've heard me say this repeatedly. I'm not sure that some people have heard it, however, really heard it. But a simple rule of thumb as far as a disciplined approach to daily devotions would be based on this statement. Don't put your head on the pillow at night if you haven't had your nose in the book during the day. Do you hear me? Don't put your head on the pillow at night if you haven't had your nose in the book during the day. Why? Because man cannot live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And who do you know who only has bread once a week? My guess is that you know people who have a very balanced diet, probably three times a day. Where is the logic that says, if I cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, where is the logic that says, but I will have a careful, balanced diet of regular food, and I won't even crack the word of God from Sunday to Sunday, and sometimes I won't even do it then. Where's the logic of that? There's none. So what we need to be developing is the discipline of structured devotions. Now, I don't have time to go into details here. In fact, we will endeavor to make something available to help people who are interested in this in the next few weeks. Let me just say a couple of things, and then we'll, we'll conclude. If you're going to develop the discipline of structured devotions, you will need to develop some specific practical things, like a time to do it. If we're talking discipline... And you have a more or less regular schedule. Now, I don't, and, other, and others of you don't. But if you have a more or less regular schedule, then the smart thing to do if you're going to develop a regular structured devotional life is have a certain time that you set aside specifically for that. The second thing you do is you set aside a place where you do it. 
I know some businessmen who purposely go to work a little early in order that they can get to their offices before everybody else so they can spend a time in the Word of God, in devotion, before anybody else comes. I know some who say, I don't want to do that in the office, so I get in my car and I drive to a certain park and I park my car and I'm there every morning at 6.45 to 7 o'clock and I've got my nose in the book. You can work it out yourself. A time and a place and a method. There are all kinds of ways of making sure that you're in the Word of God on a regular basis, which leads to the fourth thing. You need to get the tools that will assist you in the method once you've got the place and the time. Just supposing you say, you know, I really need to do this. I really need to begin to develop some kind of structured devotional life where I take the time on a daily basis, a regular basis, to hear from God through his word, in addition to the spontaneous worship that will come through seeing him at work in his creation. What would it look like? Let me give you five key words here. First of all, it would mean getting into the word of God and reading it reading it. <laughs> I, I, I meet lots of people who say the Bible is the most wonderful book in the world. <laughs> and I've said to them, how do you know? You never read it. Oh, it's a wonderful book. There's some people who think it's such a wonderful book that they keep it to press flowers in. And some keep pictures of their grandchildren in it. And some have a genealogy in the front of it. And others of it use it to prop up the broken leg of their piano. But it's designed to be read. Sorry to be elementary here, but this has escaped a lot of people. It does not work if you just hold it in your hand and say, oh, what a wonderful book. It doesn't help if you rub it on your head. <laughs> Reading it. That's where you start. Read a section of it every single day. Read it. Then reflect upon it. The Bible talks a lot about reflecting or meditating upon what you've read. In fact, Paul writing to Timothy says that if you do reflect upon it, God will give you understanding. People often say to me, oh, I've read the Bible, I can't understand it. I say, how long did you spend reflecting how much brain power did you exert on it? How much did you think through what it was saying? How much did you compare it with what it is saying somewhere else? How long did you spend just letting it marinate in your mind? You read it and you reflect on it. Sheep love green grass. They munch on it with their munchers. They get their bellies full of it. And then they find a nice shady tree and they lie down under the shady tree and then they do the most disgusting thing they regurgitate what they've eaten and they chew it over all over again it's called contemplation meditation it is called reflection you take the time you see to read and reflect thirdly you then learn how to relate. You relate what you're reading and reflecting upon to your life as it now is. 
And as you begin to relate what it is saying, you begin to discover things like this. Wow, it's talking about anger here, and I've got a problem with anger. Hmm. Never occurred to me. It never occurred to me that I should relate what the Bible is saying to me. And I begin to realize what it is saying about anger, what it says I should be doing about anger, and I begin to say to myself, God, you're going to have to help me do what it says here about my anger. And somebody else says, that's my, my problem, my problem is fear. And we, you begin to read in the Bible about fear. And as you read about fear and you reflect on what it says about fear and what you should do about fear, you begin to relate it to your life. And you know what you discover? You begin to discover a change in your life. And your changed life is a paean of praise to God. And then the fourth thing you do is you record because, you see, there's some good stuff you've learned, and you don't want to forget it. Now, some people are very meticulous in writing a journal every day. I've tried that a few times, and I usually lose my journal. But other people are more disciplined. But I have found that I can make notes of the key things that have happened to me, which leads to the fifth thing, and that is review. Because, you see, if God has been showing you things in his word that are making all the difference in your life and lifting your spirits at the beginning or the end of the day, whenever you do it, there will be times when you want to go back over the things that he showed to you in order that you might identify if there's any discernible progress. In order that as you can identify the progress, so you're able to give him praise. So what do I do? I make sure I've got a time. I make sure I've got a place. I make sure I've got a method. I make sure I've got the tools. When I put all that together, then I embark on the simple process of reading, reflecting, relating, recording, and reviewing. And I promise you something. If on a regular basis, you start to meet with God in his word, like that, you will find your attitude is changed to him, your attitude is changed to you, and your attitude is changed to life, and you will be a worshiper. It is good and right and proper for God's people to meet on the Lord's day in a place of worship and to corporately lift their voices in praise and adoration and thanksgiving to him, and to hear his word, and to worship him by concentrating on what he has to say, bringing their offerings. But remember this, the effectiveness of your Sunday morning worship is directly related to the depth of your Monday through Saturday experience of him. If you just rush in at the last minute or after the last minute into a worship service from a week that has been fundamentally barren of personal experience of him, don't be surprised if you, quote, get nothing out of it, end quote. But if you come to meet with God's people with a full heart from a week of worship, you will not be able to contain the overflow. Oh, and the interesting thing about it is this. The weekly experience of worship will then be a tremendous stimulus for the rest of the week as you go out. So, 
would you check to see if you're engaging in a spontaneous response to God's revelation of himself in creation? And would you check to see if you're disciplining yourself to a structured approach to devotional study of God's revelation in his word? Because, you see, if we're going to talk about worship, we're going to talk about daily devotions. Let's pray together. Lord, we've sort of had a torrent of information this morning, and I'm sure some people are sitting out there thinking they've tried to take a drink from a fire hydrant. But I pray that each person here would have heard something that registers with them that they can embrace and respond to. There are things that we need to mix with faith, and there are things to which we need to render obedience. Whatever it is, may we each one do one thing in response to what we've heard today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.